This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's, I think, great strength in yielding. I always use the analogy, the grocery store. I'll move to the side to let you go. It'll take me three seconds. It's a nice gesture. Could I go through you, over you? I could, but why? Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking with my good friend, Gabrielle Reese. I just love her. She's such a great woman, a great mom, and a hard worker who's got a really impressive career as well. She's one of the best volleyball players of our time, a model, an actress, and more recently, television personality, all while raising a family, kids, and being involved in her community. We'll discuss how someone with this much going on manages to balance it all and get it done, managing communication and relationships, especially when being married to another strong personality and great athlete, big wave surfer Larry. Hamilton, and we'll discuss why consistent improvement and conscious choices are key for growth and forward motion. This and lots, lots more with Gabrielle Reese here on The Art of Charm. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we study the science of people and discuss concepts like reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, social engineering, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. Check that out at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox, or you can find it in our iPhone or Android app at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Also at theartofcharm.com, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. Whether it's your first or 500th episode of AOC, we're always glad to have you here with us. Now, let's hear from Gabrielle Reese. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show today as well. I know you're super busy moving back and forth as well. Oh, no, it's an honor. Thank you. So when you're splitting time between Hawaii and Malibu, do you have to fly from Hawaii a bunch on business or do you try to set it up so that you're in the U.S. when you have to do all the U.S. stuff and then when you're in Hawaii, you can actually have a life? You would think that after 22 years of doing it that I would, but the reality is because you know this as being a self-employed freelance person that things arise. So what we do is we just base out of each place and then travel accordingly. I mean, and again, you know, it's all how you look at it. So I always go, well, this is an opportunity, but I've gone to New York from Hawaii sort of three times in five weeks because they were spontaneous, great jobs that you go. Yeah. So it's the nature of the beast. And I always kind of looked at it like, well, you set it up this way. And this is part of why you're not doing a nine to five job. And so this is the other side of that. And it's a great thing. Yeah, I suppose it comes with the territory. It's a bummer to fly from Hawaii to New York, which, what is that, like 14 hours or something? It just seems so far. Yeah, well, going when you have the tailwind from Hawaii to New York, it's probably only about 10 or 11, and then coming back, it's a little bit longer. But again, I just sort of look at the opposite, which is, for me personally, I like being self-employed and being an independent contractor, and you just have to be willing to do what it takes to do that. Yeah, and it sure beats going to an office and sitting in air conditioning and and all that stuff for every day. That seems like the opposite of what you would be able to do. I mean, looking, knowing what I do about you and stuff like that, knowing how active you guys are, sitting all day at a desk would literally kill you, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there's people who sort of say, hey, listen, I love to have it. I love the window of, okay, I work from this hour to this hour. I leave it at the office. I go home and then that's it. I mean, you know this from the job that you do. The job is sort of all the time because it's also part of who you are. I like the movement and the freedom and the a little bit of the unpredictability of what we do, certainly more than that sort of locked and loaded Monday through Friday deal. What is it about unpredictability that you actually like? Because I've heard that a lot from people in similar active kind of 
pro athletes and things like that, they love the routine of training in some way, but there's yes. also this element of excitement that comes from, oh, we're gonna do this city and we're gonna do that, and they don't seem to outgrow it. I mean, you're a mom now, you're married now, you still like that. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's a good point of, I need a certain amount of linear activity, consistency in my training and my food to kind of keep me tethered to something. But then beyond that, you sort of feel like it's maybe what you liked about competition and training is it's a little bit unknown. And so to put yourself in an unknown situation on a regular basis feels good because you feel like you're sort of testing yourself. You're having an opportunity to rise to an occasion. Maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable or scary. So that feels good. I feel like that's how you continue to get to know who you are. I like it. It's an adventure. And quite frankly, you don't want things to always be the same because then you never grow. You're not learning new stuff. You're not challenging yourself in a new way. And, and I think that that sort of is an, an essence of life. It's uh, something I read in your book was life is lived outside your comfort zone. And that's a very popular, I hate the word meme because it sounds degrading, but I guess it is kind of a meme or a motto okay. <laughs> of people, especially in your position, just constant improvement, constantly trying to make yourself uncomfortable and grow. I think that's admirable. I think that's what separates a lot of people who are successful in areas like you are versus people who just kind of are dreamers or wannabes. And I also read that you only feel like working out or training 50% of the time, which is really, I was surprised by that. Being a pro athlete and you know, you're a model or you still are, only feel like training half the time. That sounds like me. Well, listen, I think, let's be honest, I think that's most people. First of all, I believe in all of us, most of us, we're athletes, right? There's some who kind of express it more and others, but every once in a while you meet a person and they can be an attorney, but they're an athlete and they are, they wake up and they're driven and it's, a, you know, they sort of, that's what they are doing. I believe that most of us probably feel like training, if you're lucky, 50% of the time. So I always don't want to sell a bill of goods to people like, oh, I'm just so inspired every day. And you know, to go and do it and be tormented. I'd rather be sitting down or I'd rather lay in bed for an extra, you know, 30 minutes or whatever that is. Because I think that's the important part of the message is it's just about creating that system and that infrastructure for success. It's not about feeling like you want to all the time. That's important to realize, I think, for a lot of people who are not even just with working out or athletics. I think a lot of people think, well, this isn't the job or career for me because I'm not, 100% of the time, I'm not waking up motivated to attack the day or, oh, this isn't the sport for me or this workout's not gonna work for me because I often don't feel like going. When we read articles in Maxim or Self Magazine or whichever <laughs> side of the glosses you fall on, the articles that have a lot of times people that have careers similar to yours, it's always like they're sitting on the beach in the sun and the sunrise and it's just like every day is an inspiration and you just think, oh crap, I can never be like Gabby Reese, because I yeah. don't feel like that at all. I wake up with oatmeal stuck to my chin. You know, this is not how my, my life is. I'll share something with you. Like I had a knee replacement last year and my knee has probably been hurting me for upwards to 14 or 15 years prior to the surgery. Right. And even now to this day, it's not functioning really the way I would like it to. It was a great surgery and it's great. And there is frustration and insecurity and all kinds of emotions around this. And I deal with it every day. So I guess what I'm saying is we all have these, whether they're self-inflicted obstacles or ones brought on by life that we are contending with, it's kind of like how you look at it. So I could dive deep down that hole and be poor me and my knee's not bending and it's not straightening the way I want it to. And if steps are too high, I'm weird and feel awkward and all these things. Or I can say, but I don't have a major illness. The rest of my body's working very well. And so I'm going to work around it. And I'm going to acknowledge that some days I feel crappy, I feel vulnerable and not my best self, but I'm going to work around it. And I really believe that that is life. I guess maybe if like I was a Buddhist, that the pain and the good and the bad, it's all part of the same story. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that because a lot of times we're bombarded with this inspirational material that says, you should feel good all the time, you should feel motivated all the time, you should feel, even though you have this setback, it, now it's your strength, and it's like, no, it's not a strength, it's a broken knee and it, it sucks, but it's I'm still able to persevere and push through that. Yeah, I think everybody has that, because you know sometimes people say to me, wow, I, you know, I can't believe all that you know, you juggle and you get done, and I say, okay, let's be really clear about something. First of all, 
I'm wildly incentivized, right? Like if I work, I probably get paid very well for what I do. There's rewards, there's attention, there's all these things, right? I say, you want to talk to me about somebody who's juggling a lot. How about somebody who, let's take a single parent, for example, who's working three jobs just to keep the lights on. That's the real stuff. And for me, I think it's about keeping perspective on what we're reacting to. So, you know, Laird calls it the wambulance. It's like, (laughs) you know, my knee is sore. It's like, yeah, big effing deal. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's keeping everything in its perspective and in its place because then emotionally you're reacting to it kind of accordingly. Because when I see what other people go through, I'm like, man, I have got nothing. Like I'm not doing anything. I haven't done anything. So I think it's for me, I'm, I kind of look at it that way. And, and I've said this many times, you know, we have low cards and high cards. It's like, which cards do you want to play in your hand? Do you want to cry that you have low cards? Or do you want to play your high cards and get on with it? By low cards and high cards, you just mean that it just depends on which choices you're going to make that day, especially when it comes to the mood that you're in or how you react to events. Well, that's it. And, you know, it's like when I was younger, my mom left for a few years. My dad died. I had some pretty wonky stuff happening. I was six foot three at 15 and had a certain look that those were some high cards that if I navigated those correctly, they helped me overcome the low cards. And I think people a lot of times are always retelling an old story. I have to be mindful of that, too. And going, well, this happened to me and that happened to me. It's like it did. But is there not something else in your story that could feasibly help you move on from that and even appreciate and granted, listen, I'm not suggesting there aren't things that people go through that it's it's almost virtually impossible to get over. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying most of us walking around, it's like low cards and high cards. There's all these beauty jingles, you know, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. You know, it's all this stuff. It's kind of that silliness, but it's very true. I'm not a huge fan of Instagram memes that make people feel inferior or attempts at being inspiring, but it, there is some truth to the fact that you can make choices with whatever you've got, and that a lot of times those same situations do make you stronger in one way, even if they are objectively not positive things. Well, again, I'll use my knee. I have tried more exercises and therapies and turmeric drinks than you can imagine, (laughs) and it's why, because I have an obstacle. If everything was cool, I'd just go on as usual, and because of this, this is a teacher that's making me stretch and learn more and understand about other things that I probably wouldn't have, because I'm inherently would be lazy and it wasn't necessary. So I agree with you. And and I think my hope is like, I'm always want to talk about it in a very blue collar, matter of fact way. Like I don't want to have my head in the clouds. I want to be positive, but still in sort of in that like very everyday way, because when people talk to me like that, I can connect with that. When they go, oh, you know, the spirit above and the sun is shining. I just go, I don't know about that. So <laughs> it's like trying to find that real matter of fact, communication, but yes, being positive. Yeah. Where did you grow up? You grew up, um, forgive me, in the Virgin Islands? Trinidad. Yeah. So, well, my father's from Trinidad, so that's very good, but close. I mean, I grew up in the West Indies, but I did live in Long Island, New York for five years when I lived with friends of, of my mother. I was raised by my aunt and Uncle Joe. And let me tell you, my Uncle Joe was like a construction worker, worked for the sanitation department in New York. You know, my Anna used to say, like, kid, you know, go away. Don't go away angry, but just go away. Like, they're very direct New York people. And then in the Caribbean, when you grow up on an island, it is different than the mainland U.S. It's kind of like I see it when I live in Hawaii. There is a sort of a directness and a shorthand. And, and I'm glad, but I think I learned it definitely from those two places. And it was also something that maybe because that's the way I could hear things, maybe that that's the way I tried to communicate more. Starting at 15, I got really involved with sports. Coaches don't fluff it up and go on and on. They go, get it done, get to the line, get your arm up, get it together. You can do it. Let's go. So that shorthand got developed. I read that you didn't begin sports until 11th grade and you said age 15. So that kind of checks out. How come you didn't get into sports sooner? I mean, weren't you six foot something when you were like 12? Yeah, I was six feet at 12 and six, three at 15. But I, again, because I grew up in the Caribbean, I dabbled a little bit in volleyball my 10th grade year. But organized sports back then, you know, on St. Thomas, it wasn't like, oh, you know, you could do something with this. I think I was already dealing with some of my frustrations as already that tumultuous time in my life, but also some of my history 
kind of aggravated. So I started a little bit. And then when I moved to Florida, my junior year of high school, which things were more organized, athletics was sort of a real part of the culture and the school and things like that. And I walked in at 15 at 6'3", they were like, oh, you're playing volleyball and basketball. So that's kind of how it happened. You said you were aggravated when you were a kid. What was going on on the island at that point? I didn't have a lot of stability. And I think I was truly hurt from my situation with my mother. I was, my feelings were probably hurt and I probably hadn't gotten over it yet. You know, she did the best she could. And at, you know, two and a half years old, she worked and left me with these people who raised me as their own child till I was seven. And then the problem was is that then she decided she was ready. So then I got the extraction from that stable environment. And that was very difficult. And I think I carried that with me for a while. But it was the best thing that ever happened because, first of all, fast forward in a weird way, my husband, I have a stepdaughter. She was a very small baby when I met my husband. And I never thought for one second, like, hey, I can be her mom because she has a great mom. But I knew I could be impactful because I had experienced it with my aunt. Like if I just love her, that can be powerful. So I got that gift. I got um, being very resourceful, independent, organized, because a lot of the people around me were not. So there was a lot of great stuff that came out of it. But at that time, and then I was pissed because we moved from my home in the Caribbean to Florida, which was really a very significant and important move that really changed the trajectory of my whole life. But at the 15 years of age, you know, I'm leaving my boyfriend and my friends. Right. That was a primary concern at that point, for sure. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. 
Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Were there any special social skills that are required growing up on an island? And then how did those change when you got to the mainland US and you're like, not only do I have to move and make new friends, I've got to figure out how people do things here again. Yeah, so I came from a really loosey-goosey West Indian culture. A lot of the parents, if they weren't from there, why were they there? It's like all of our parents were in some level kind of lunatics. They were all, you know, it was carnival. Your parents would kind of disappear for two, three days. So you had that element too. I'm, when I moved to Florida, my mother put me in a very, very conservative Christian school. So not only was I switching cultures, then I was switching an entire kind of way of living and what is, you know, I was never taught about how important it was what people thought. That wasn't the thinking where I grew up. And then when you go to a very conservative Christian environment, the length of your skirt also is part of the conversation, right? So, I mean, it was radically different. And again, it was important. I needed sort of another part of the scale. I needed to balance it out a little bit more. And I got that. But the adjustment was brutal. Yeah. The principal let me in the school and I had no formal religious kind of training or part of my life. It just wasn't a part of how I grew up. And then he actually ended up being a really important person, Mr. Greener. But he let me in the school. But the joke was I was the only, quote, unsaved person in the high school. <laughs> wow. Try that. Yeah. And I'm 6'3". I have blonde hair. I probably swear like a sailor at a Christian school. So it was really funny. But then there I met very good people. And I understood that people, you know, there's all elements of religion for me. But then you go and certain people that have faith and it makes them more loving and less judgmental. They have great families and all the sort of the great parts of that. And I got to witness that and understand that, oh, that that's out there too. So it was great. And I had incredible coaches that took time and invested in me as a person. Again, it really changed. I went from there to getting scholarships and going to college and playing ball and going on from there. I think clearly if I hadn't gone there, and had those people impact me, I would have never pulled it. You think you would have gone downhill just staying in that other environment? Yeah, I probably would have had a kid by 19, you know, if, you know, work in a gift shop, because you don't understand what a big world it is sometimes when you live on an island, and what is possible, and how do you express yourself in those other ways. You're not really taught that. It's important to have some of that, but then conversely, I think it's dangerous to have kids be too stacked up and too scheduled and too performance oriented when they're young. So it's like just finding that middle ground. It's like with my kids. I'm like, listen, be grounded. That's why I love living in Hawaii and come from that grounded place and that place of respect, you know, auntie and uncle culture. But you know what? You can be anything you want. It's a big world. So I think it for me that that I would have definitely probably stayed in St. Thomas and and just kind of lived that life. How do you pass these skills down to your kids besides just living in Hawaii? I mean, are you passing down athletic skills as well, work ethic? Because you work really hard. Yeah, I mean, my husband and I both are, by nature, I think, you know, we're sort of grinders. But it's an interesting thing, man, when it's your own kids. I always say they don't really listen to you. They really watch you. And you can't really tell them. You can try to instill the values and tell them what's important to you. So honesty and hard work and, and respecting others and respecting yourself. But then the communication is, now we want to encourage you to figure out what does turn you on and what excites you and what do you think you want to do. But you still have to hit those fundamentals. But I have no manual. Ultimately, my kids probably listen to me 7% of the time. I'm not sure. <laughs> And then, you know, you surround them with other people that can have these influences because we're limited, right? We're, we only know so much, but then maybe you've got these other people that they give them a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you hope that the impact helps them navigate their own life. And I tell my girls all the time, listen, I'm not here to control you. I'm trying to teach you to control yourself and get you to do things that are good and right for you and for your whole life. But it is the hardest thing in the world to do. You mentioned in your book that becoming a mother is like flipping a switch and you become someone else. Parenting finally pushes you to grow up. What has it done to you? I mean, how have you grown up as a result of, of having kids? Well, it's a deconstruction, first of all. I was much smarter and knew a lot more about what was going on at 21. Now at 47, I don't know anything. And it brings you to your knees in a way that nothing else does. And you surrender 
And at times, like for example, you want to react how you feel. It's important to react to what is right. And those things can be sometimes conflicted. So sometimes maybe I want an impulse and I just want to tell everyone to F off and throw shit and like freak out and or whatever it is. But in that moment, you've got to really be disciplined and go, what is the right thing to do right here and right now? And sometimes you can be honest with yourself and say, I have no clue. So I'm going to do the best I can. But it really deconstructs you in a way that, you know, nothing else I've ever done has, not even sports. It makes you also have to really confront the fact that you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. And that is a hard pill to swallow because it's so important and you're so passionate about doing it right. And there's just no chance. It just isn't. Do you still take your younger kids on the road with you for work? I know you used to do that. Yeah, I do. You know, especially if it's a little bit longer, like more than two or three days, and it makes sense, um, I'll take them. But Laird and I kind of have a thing where if one of us has to go, the other one's usually at home. And if it's something where he and I are going together, then we really try to make sure that they come with us. Because for me, that is my most important job. And being away from them for an extended period of time doesn't feel natural. And and I will say this, we have the luxury to say, okay, we're going to take the girls. But, you know, there's days where I'm like, oh, my God, I should have left them. You know, kids don't do what you want them to do. So that's the great thing. It's more honest. It's like, listen, you're not in control, really. I'm here in my life. I'm all scheduled up. It's all written down. It's all perfect. I'm not really in control. I like to pretend I'm in control. They remind you every single day, like zero control. I laugh. I said this one time I was paddling on the river. I go, I realize I have power. Like I can say no to things. I can move them from one side to the next, but I have no control. And that is a really interesting thing. But yeah, we bring them because it's my family. And, you know, they're going to move out. Our 21-year-old is in college and, you know, they get on with their life. So this is the time. Yeah, you can't pause their life while you're busy doing your thing. That's right. This is my time. Yeah, this is your time to mother them. And you can't choose how that's going to happen. Well, you can, I guess, but you chose to have it happen well alongside your career. So you can either just not be around or you can say, hey, look, get in the van or the plane or whatever. Yeah. And it's and listen, it's I call it the shit show, you know, and ask any woman that takes her kids. It's like you're putting on this hat and you're trying to be all together and do your career and your work. And then, you know, your side jaw clenching, whispering to your kid like, you know, be quiet, you know, or whatever it is, like sort of beautiful because it's so chaotic. And it's so honest and it keeps you from thinking like you're so together. That part is, it's so human. But yeah, because I personally, you know, Laird always jokes like, he's like, you should have seen Gabby's car before she had kids. Like it was always clean and everything's organized. And, and, you know, that goes out the window. Yeah. Now it's full of like wrappers for meal bars (laughs) and little toys. Yeah. And I'm like, did we have to have the socks from tennis in the car for like a week? I mean, can somebody not pick? I mean, and it's the same conversations over and over, right? It's all that. So, you know, I call it the rack focus, right? It's in and out. You're always doing that in your life. Hopefully you're looking above yourself and watching yourself and going, whoa, how are you navigating that? And then sometimes you're in it and you're just freaking out. But it's doing that rack focus and, and trying to go, is that that important? No, it's not that important. No, this is really important. And also laughing at yourself because sometimes you're just running around like a almost like a lunatic. And you go, look at you, you're kind of a lunatic. Yeah, it must be hard to separate yourself from that. It it sounds like you've got some skills from sports, business that are helping you with your family life. You mentioned externally looking at your situation. Yeah, I think sometimes the biggest gift is to back up, go up and look over because then it gives you that perspective. Neil and I were just talking about this, like it's not about us. You know, like sometimes like you're going through the day and especially women, right? We hitting, we're taking everything personal. And sometimes if you just back up a little and go, you know what? Yo, that's not about me. And even like my problems, like whatever problems I think I really have, if I just back up a little and go, is that really a problem? It's fine. It's not that big of a deal. So I'm very thankful for that trait. I think it has definitely probably helped my marriage a great deal (laughs) or staying married. And it's helped me keep my sense of humor and hopefully helps me save a lot of time on, you know, wasting energy and time on things that ultimately it's like, who cares? How often do you do things for yourself that are not wife slash mother related? You know, my training has always been for me. Obviously, it was part of my job. But now I look at my training as like the biggest gift and selfish thing I do for myself. Again, not in a corny way, but it's like, yo, this is just for me, the person, not even the woman, like 
this human that's like getting to express this part and doing something that I know no matter what, whether I do it for 10 minutes or 90 minutes, it's something really good for me. And so what used to be my job is also now become the thing that when I get that done, I'm like, okay, I'm good. Well, I heard that when you were giving birth, Owen Wilson called and wanted some chili and wanted to hang out with Laird and stuff. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's better than that. So it was my third daughter and, and uh, it was January 1st. And so, you know, you think I'm like, nobody goes into labor on January 1st. It's probably not real, but whatever. We were still living on Maui at the time. And his brother, Luke, who's quite lovely, had been maybe a couple months prior, had done some activities with Laird. So I think in brotherly competition, he kind of bragged to Owen. So when Owen came to Maui, he spends a lot of time there. He calls the house and he's like, hey, Gabby, it's Owen Wilson. Is Laird there? And I was like, no, actually, he's, you know, at the beach at Hukipa, whatever. And he goes, I want to get into it. And what are y'all doing later? And I was like, well, I think I'm actually having a baby. I'm in labor right now, but it was still mellow. You know, it hadn't kicked up yet. I said, but you're welcome to go try and find him. Let's say it was like nine or 10 in the morning. Well, lo and behold, like at, you know, two o'clock or whatever, Laird and him drive up. He follows Laird to our house in Maui. He's like, are you good? And and what I did is because I knew I was going to labor, I made a big giant pot of chili and gluten-free cornbread and all this stuff because I thought, okay, at least him and, and Reese, my middle, will have some food and they'll be good. And Laird's like, well, I'm going to show them, drive them out to the point and show them piahi, which is a wave known as Jaws. They come back and now I'm starting to ramp up. Now my contractions are getting closer together. The chili's cooked. They come in and I say to Laird, okay, you know, I think it's happening. And Owen's like, I'm starving. And I go, well, I have chili here. And so then he's like asking me about sour cream. And my friend had flown in, Jen, to take care of my daughter and Laird when I was in, having the baby. And she was a volleyball player and a strong girl. And she was getting, she's like, I'm going to punch him out. And I was like, take it easy. And, you know, I'm literally in labor. Like, if you've ever seen a girl in labor, it's like, okay, one second. And then you sort of have your little mini shock. And then you're like, okay, what was that question? You know? And so, yeah, so Owen was there. Yeah. It was pretty funny. And he's like, you're between contractions. And he's like, where's the sour cream? Do you have sour cream? Where's the fridge? <laughs> if I was exaggerating, it wouldn't be as funny. But actually, I'm dead serious. That's probably why he's good at his job, you know? What do you mean? Because I'm like, these actors, man, they are, it's, they're clueless. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm joking, but it's like, they sort of live in their mind and in their world. And I have a few friends that do that craft and they're not quite like that. But part of them, that's what's sort of magical about them. But you're like, how is it over there? You know, as I'm like bent over in the kitchen. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Listen, at least on the way to the hospital, I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously really tough, especially when it comes to that sort of thing. You're the first female athlete to have her own shoe, which I tried to look at online. But when I Googled Gabrielle Reese Nike shoe, all I found was like 8,000 pictures of you in a sports bra or playing volleyball or something like that. Oh, <laughs> I was really fortunate, you know, that I always say that's like timing, you know. And the other side of that that was really cool was Tinker Hatfield was the designer of my shoe. And so for anyone who's a sort of sneakerhead, if you will, Tinker was really the responsible person for Air Jordans and that brand for a really long time. And he's just a very talented guy. So the success of that shoe was really also the fact that Tinker designed the shoe, obviously. So we did a few seasons and the shoe did very, very well. And I was signed for cross training, for training. That was like when Bo knows that whole thing was going oh, on. Yeah. And so it was kind of better for me because volleyball is so small, but to cross over and really be signed for training that gave me a little bit more room and extension inside of Nike that I wouldn't have had if I was signed only for volleyball. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That whole business seems like it's just loaded with ego and testosterone. Even in your personal life, you got athlete friends. How do you turn it off or do you or just deal with it? And that's a fact of life with those people. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll be honest with you. At this time in our lives, and I'll use Laird as sort of a partner in this, you know, generally we don't spend a lot of time with people that they are alphas, but it's like they've got weird balance, or at least they balance it when they're around us. Because, you know, my husband is pretty alphaish, and we always say everybody leaves it at the door. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is get together, enjoy each other, maybe learn from each other, push each other. Those other types, they kind of don't survive in our environment because both of us, we have different gears, you know, if you will. But because you start to realize like, hey, the essence of life is you don't actually want to be the best or the smartest or the strongest in the room. You want to be around those kind of people because then they're going to make you better. But if you want to compete, okay, well, we can do that too. (laughs) But that's not as productive. But, you know, it's, sometimes it's almost a sign of youth. When you see a lot of that, you go, oh, they haven't dialed it in yet. And they're still a little afraid and they're unsure of their place. And so you kind of understand it also a little bit. I think that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like you got to know when to bring in the competition, when it's making you better and when it's actually not. That's right. Because the competition, when you're competing against somebody who can actually help you, you're losing an opportunity to learn from them and connect and tap into their power. So I think it's also, it's a yielding that has to occur where each person can acknowledge and go, hey, you know what, I I did what you do or I respect you. And then you can really get some stuff done versus I'm so great, I'm a badass and you want to compete because then all of a sudden now you're going to rub against them versus learn from them and hook in with them. I think it's interesting that you take that stuff into your marriage as well. I know I know you're big on spending time with happily married, good communicators, and you credit that with, in part, with the success of your marriage as well. It sounds a lot like that Jim Rohn quote, like, you only go as high as your five closest friends or the people you spend time around or who you become and things like that. How does that apply in your relationships? How did you set that up and how does it help you? You know, like, I'll just use Laird and I as an example. People go, gosh, you guys seem to really like each other so much. And I said, you know, the thing I know about each of us individually is why bother? I'm not going to do it and be in this relationship and be with him if one, I'm not coming at it with the attitude of how can I make his life better? How can I help him out? And also, I want to enjoy it. I want to respect him. And otherwise, I'd rather be alone. I'd rather not be married. So I think it's really first comes and I know he's even more intense about it than I am, is sort of saying, if we're going to do this, whatever this is, so everybody has a many thises in their life, right? It's work, it's relationships, it's self-care, whatever. Why not make it great if you can? If you can, sometimes you can't. If Laird and I got to a point where I was like, this just probably isn't working and we've tried a lot of stuff. Okay, there's that's a different thing. But like, wow, if I can participate in this and try to make this great, why would I not do that? If I walk up to a counter at the ticket counter or something, and I'm going to interact with the person, why would I not come out with, at it with like, hey, good afternoon. How are you today? Okay, I need some help. So I think for me, it's it's like you're always trying to operate 
in that place because then all of a sudden your world you're living on that frequency versus everywhere you go you've got conflict you can't stand your partner you can't stand yourself your life it sucks it's like okay i get it so what can you do to sort of say how can i try to make it great and it's an amazing thing when people are personally accountable and say well i'll do my part and then see what happens your career is i think a lot larger than his if you're going to compare the two and i don't i'm doing that only because I know that you mentioned in your book that you kept making your personality a little bit smaller yeah. in order to kind of manage your relationship. What was that like and what did that do for your relationship or to your relationship? You know, I was young. I was 25 when I met Larry, but because of the nature of my job, I got to kind of jump on things a little bit. I think it's really typical of females. And I will say this, and I've talked about this a little bit. I was not groomed for success the way I grew up. But as things start to open up for you and things start to happen, it feels uncomfortable and you feel weird and guilty and you feel all this stuff that you got to figure out how to manage success, right? So then I get partnered with somebody who I knew intuitively, Laird is better at what he does than at what I do. I do a variety of things pretty well, maybe more than him. What he does, he's so much better like at surfing than I ever was at volleyball, right? So I was dealing with that and I was the female so there was this kind of natural thing where I was like, well, I don't want to make him feel bad. And so I'll be less than. And really what it came down to is once Laird sort of had his own footing and a couple of pats on the back, if you will, and also maturity, you know, he grew up too. And I think once men become a little more developed, there's room like, oh yeah, honey, go ahead, kick some ass. Awesome. Bravo. But when you're younger, maybe it makes you feel threatened. So we were dealing with all these dynamics when we first got together then we worked through it. You know, we almost got divorced. And then it was like, you know, we really love each other. Let's try to work this out. And then I think it's like we both kind of grew up a little bit. And it took time. I, I mean, part of me, you know, I, I know it sounds silly. I kick myself in the ass because I spent a lot of time apologizing for everything in my 20s to everybody, teammates and, you know, everything, because I felt bad for getting a lot of opportunities and getting singled out. And I wish I hadn't done that. Like, I wish I had just been like, you know, what? I'm going to put my foot on the gas and I'm going to be as badass as I can be. And everyone can suck it if they don't like it. A lot of us are not doing that, especially women in their 20s. Some are. It's true. And I think a lot of people feel like they can't do that as well. And I know that even more recently, you've talked about how women being submissive in relationships is actually a sign of strength and not weakness, depending on how it's done. And uh, one interesting quote that I pulled was, we don't worry about men having it all, so I don't know where we got this idea that, to have it all. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about how women need to take care of themselves and their, their man. Have you taken flack for that from the sort of ultra-feminist camp? I would imagine. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I got like, oh, you set back the feminist movement for 20 years. So there's a couple layers into that. First of all, I call it the post-feminist conversation because let's say if I was born just a little earlier, remember I was born right at Title IX. So I am the first generation exactly 17 or 18 years after it's passed to get a full ride scholarship to go to college. So there's things I didn't have to navigate that the women before me did. So I understand from their point of view, like what a sucky comment that is. And plus the fact that the word submissive makes a lot of people nervous, but the way I used it was in service. And I genuinely believe, and I was only speaking from my personal experience, that the idea of serving your partner and serving your, your children and your family is a lot of work and is a sign of great strength. However, I am not an idiot or say like throw yourself in front of the bus and do it because it's Archie Bunker's your husband. It's like, yo, pick a good partner who's on the same page as you. But for me to try to communicate what Laird should do is stupid. Laird's got to do what he should do. Not me tell Laird, you know, well, if you do this, then I'll do that. How about this? I'm going to choose to be the best partner I can be. I'm going to work my ass off. I'm going to be, try to be great for you. And hopefully you'll do the same thing. And by the way, if he didn't, we probably wouldn't be together for almost 22 years. So I think it's, we're also in a time where people are very combative and it's all like, well, no, you're not going to get up on me. And if you want this, or I'll give you this if you do that, that doesn't work. And by the way, if you're with an alpha male, that will blow up in your face in about seven minutes. You don't tell an alpha male, do this. What you do is you hold your line, you live the way you want to live. And what I have seen is you can inspire someone, 
they can look at you and go, wow, she's really like on her game. I be- I'm going to get on my game, not you better. That doesn't work. And so people, I think they misunderstood and oversimplified what I was saying. And I'm okay with that. You know, Katie Couric was like, you know, in my house, everything was equal. And I was like, really? There's no such thing as equal in a house. You add some kids and it's definitely not equal. And even if it means that the woman is the alpha, there's no two male energies in a straighter gay couple. There's one masculine energy and one feminine. And I was saying in my house, I took the role of feminine because Lur definitely takes the role of masculine. And just having that conversation of flow, because then I walk out the door and then I'm back to alpha. So how does that work? And also once or twice a year, Laird knows that's it. Like, here's a line. You want to cross the line. Let's go. I'm down. So it's not about being a doormat, but it's also talking about there's, I think, great strength in yielding. I always use the analogy, the grocery store. You're coming down the aisle. I'm coming down the aisle the other way. If I see you, guess what? Even if you're younger, whatever. I'll move to the side to let you go. It'll take me three seconds. And it, it's a nice gesture. Could I go through you, over you? I could. But why? Larry read this book and it, it talks about, it's called uh, Natural Born Heroes. And it says, hey, listen, to be a true warrior, you have to be compassionate. So we're in a culture right now where everyone's forgetting about service and kindness and all these things that really are powerful. Yeah, I think there's something to that. and It seems like coming from a place of power is more effective in the end than coming at it from a place of the opposite or some sort of mishmash of the two. And especially when you're dealing with somebody like Laird, I know you mentioned in the book, you call him the weatherman because he's super moody. (laughs) And you can't take responsibility for someone else's happiness like that. And I know earlier in your marriage, one of the things that was causing the problems was you had this mindset that, well, if he really loved me, he'd be happy with me most of the time. I'm responsible for making him happy. You just can't do that to yourself. Well, you can't do that. It's a kind of a ridiculous notion to think that you can make someone else happy and that someone else can make you happy. You can improve someone else's life. You can inspire people. You can have that back at you. But we all sort of have to work out our own stuff, if you will. And what's been interesting is to watch Laird over the years, like his moods are, and I don't know if it's the tenderizing of our children, but you know, he's really leveled out. And it's, I think it's an interesting thing to watch men grow up because then all of a sudden it's like young guys come, they train. He's like, yeah, go ahead. You go, you know, it's like an interesting, you learn to back up. And I believe this as an adult. It's like, my kids tell me stuff that of course I know. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting for them to know I'm right. Or that I knew that already. It's like, I don't care. There comes a point where you you sort of surrender to everyone needing to know how smart and on it you are. It's like, I don't really give a shit. It's like, you know, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. And whether you get it or not, or, and a big thing as a woman was not taking it personal and, and understanding that that intensity in Laird was also attached to about 50 other things that I loved about him. And so cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. I'm glad that it's worked out so well so far. I'm glad that we met recently and became friends because I think you're an awesome person. I'm glad you took your time here to be on the show with us. I really appreciate it. Well, I I really appreciate the work that you do and, you know, for coming and and hanging out with Neil and I in the barrel was was really a treat. And, And it was cool, too, to see Neil learn things that he didn't know about you. Yeah. You know, I like to see Neil surprised and I'm just I'm happy for you and for the message that you're putting out with the show. So thank you so much for having me. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you get out there and convey? I think it's been on my mind a lot that obviously it's there's a lot of stuff going on in the world at the moment. I always say to Laird, you know, we really have to fortify ourselves more. And and what I mean by that is, you know, just to encourage people to try to keep taking care of themselves. And I know it's so corny, like, oh, be positive. But I think the world needs sort of some kind of like love, positivity, And also remind them that like, it's short. So if you got something you want to do and you haven't taken that risk, if you can do it in a calculated and smart way without ruining your life, you got to go for it. Great message. Thank you very much. Aloha. Great big thank you to Gabrielle Reese. Her podcast, by the way, is called The Truth Barrel. She does that with Neil Strauss. I was on there a few weeks ago. 
they do a great job. It's interesting because they do it in this sauna and it's hot as hell, which I thought was a dumb gimmick at first, but really does take away a lot of the a lot of the resistance. You think you're going to be in your A game and perform for everybody and you're just sweating and getting burned by a microphone cord. All the front just goes by the wayside. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. And this was really good, Jason. I was, I mean, I've known her for a bit and I like her stuff, but I even I was still just really impressed with how forthright she was and how open she is. I just love that stuff. No, she's just purely genuine. And in a way that's very kind and positive and designed to help others, you don't see that combination a lot, especially in people who had success early on in their field and then got famous as a result. It's just, she's just the opposite of so many people who are in that field and in that area and living in LA for that matter, especially in Malibu and stuff like that. So she's just fantastic. I'm glad, I hope everybody else enjoyed this one. If you did, don't forget to thank Gabrielle on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And tweet at me your number one takeaway from Gabrielle Reese. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And remember, you can tap our album art in most podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. And we link to the show notes directly on your phone. Our live programs, our boot camps here in LA, details on that are at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. The idea behind this is, look, we are each art projects. We can curate our input and curate those around us and shape our future selves. It is extremely powerful to realize that. And The Art of Charm is the study of how this is done and how to do it for ourselves. And that's what you're gonna learn at bootcamp. Join thousands of other guys who've come through from all over the world and see what we're doing here and become a part of it, hopefully. And remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. Bootcamp details, again, at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Also, we have the AOC Challenge. If you want to dip your toes in the water, that's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it will definitely make you a better thinker. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.